Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Hey everyone, welcome back to Podside Picnic, and welcome back to Lovecraft Month. Uh, good news everyone, Pete has returned, uh, I think in one piece. He sounds a little different, but you know, he's a, he's a man of the world, a man of many, many important travels, and that, that changes someone. So, you know, I, I'll just trust that, uh, that Pete has returned from his investigations all the richer and wiser. Um, well, yeah, I don't remember most of it, and there's some sucker-like bites all over my body, but I, I think I'm okay. <laughs> and that's what really matters. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> so, in that spirit, uh, it's still Lovecraft Month, uh, and we're not talking about H.P. Lovecraft's own creations right now. We are actually going to uh, talk about something that was inspired by him. And that is a video game that we've both been playing, came out earlier this year, called The Sinking City. And it's available on a lot of platforms. Uh, it got fairly mixed reviews, but I'll, I'll say this right off the bat. It's definitely very invested in being a game that exhibits as much deep background lore and knowledge of the H.P. Lovecraft mythos as possible. Is that a fair statement, Pete? Oh, yeah. It, it is really good at immersion. There are some things it is not good at, but if you want to feel like you are a, a 1920s noir detective cons- consulting, consulting, confronting the unknowable, oh my God. Yeah, so the as, as Pete alluded to, the, the premise here is that uh, you're a guy named Charles Reed. This is, I guess, the 20s or early 30s, post-World War II, World War I, rather. Um, right. Charles Reed is a Navy war veteran, trained as a diver, which becomes can, comes in comes in handy. Uh, <laughs> to a fault, yes. Yeah, and so one of the cool things here is that uh, the creators um, of this game have come up with this new, loca- this new location that's basically an amalgam of different piece, scraps of Lovecraft lore. It's kind of a combination of Arkham, or Miskatonic University is, and Innsmouth, from Shadow over Innsmouth and several other places. And it's called Oakmont, Massachusetts. We're sort of meant to believe it's on an island, a la like Nantucket or something, but it's sort of this like pretty grim, fairly large industrial city with that great like pre-World War II brick uh, architecture. And it's got a university. It's got a lot of sort of old history. And it's fallen into, I think, something more severe than disrepair. It's like actively sinking. There was a big cataclysm that like flooded a lot of the city, so a lot of its canals. And there's a lot of shit going on in this city, it, to say the least. <laughs> it's sort of mid Sodom and Gomorrah at this point. Yeah, and like you're it's very clear that it's cut off from the mainland, and so like there's an economy based on bartering bullets and other things. So like on the one hand, it's a very much a period piece nineteen twenties thing. A lot of the like the outfits and the architecture and everything else is recognizable if you've seen like Boardwalk Empire, you know, those sort of like old Eastern coastal cities in the 20s. 
but at the same time, it's it's not just faintly Lovecraftian. It's sort of overridden with Lovecraftian imagery and references from all of his different stories, uh, predominantly things from the Cthulhu mythos, of course, which he's most famous for, but also pre-Cthulhu um, influences here. And, and like, you know, I think Pete's played. Have you finished this game, Pete? Uh, no, but I'm getting pretty close. Yeah, I mean, you could probably index for us a lot of the different things that go into it, but I think it's safe to say, like, even though I'm much closer to the beginning, like, even in the first few hours of playing this game, you get stuff from Cthulhu directly, you get stuff from Innsmouth, you get stuff from uh, the Arthur German story, has a long title, I forget, um, and, and multiple other ones, and it's all very carefully layered together to fit into the story, so that's cool. Yeah, and there's there's definitely some original content in there too, which is nice. It's um I what I like the most about this is it does it fits together as a detective story. Like it's really rich. There's a lot of things you can do. You can poke around for clues and try and assemble them in different ways to form different conclusions, which controls where you go. And that's a that's a pretty neat game mechanic in my opinion. And I feel like they're paying us right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. So I, I did, t- first to elaborate on what you were talking about, like, yeah, so you're a private eye and you show up in Oakmont uh, to investigate your own sort of visions and nightmares. And those other people are having and many other people that are having these same visions are congregating this city. And, you know, from there, you get embroiled immediately in a missing persons investigation that turns into a murder mystery that turns into further mysteries. And all along, the predominant dynamic is that you are an investigator solving crime. So things like combat, uh, you know, are secondary and that's something we'll get into, but really there is like you, you pretty much progress through the game by, you know, sort of being assigned these cases to solve or assigning them to yourself. And then you poke around for evidence. Things go usually go wrong in some way, but you have to like, carefully scrape like these entire you know entire buildings for evidence and you have to sort of there's there's really cool ways about how you arrange it in your mind both in like your mind palace diary dynamic and like also you can sort of see visions of the past because you have weird supernatural powers and i'm not going to explain all of it but as pete said like it really does simulate the the experience of on the one hand being like a traditional gumshoe private eye who's just sort of muddling through uh, you know, sort of long drawn out investigations and piecing together evidence. But on the other hand, adding in supernatural elements that are uniquely Lovecraftian. And that's, of, that's all. Yeah. Well, one of the things I was thinking about today, and I wanted to bounce this off of you, Connor, is that this sort of experiment on some level is doomed to fail. And the reason is, it's like you, the, it's designed to get you more and more invested in a character and give you this Cthulian atmosphere well, in a genuine Cthulian atmosphere, you couldn't win. Right, right. So it's like story after story, you piece things together and you get out in one piece and you get victories out of it. And like the better you do, the less real it feels on some level. I'm still enjoying it, but it's sort of like, well, how many of these monsters am I going to kill and still be frightened? Right. Because part of the, one of the dynamics is uh, mechanics rather is you have like a sanity bar and encountering these otherworldly monsters drives you insane, but only temporarily and you recover from it. And it's like, all right, am I still scared of these after all this time? So yeah, yeah. I mean, look, to be clear, this is a game that is very interesting. If you're, if you like Lovecraft, um, if you're really a big Lovecraft head and you game it all, I'd recommend checking it out because I don't, I think there's a broad consensus that there aren't many other games, if any, that have sort of layered in this much Lovecraft 
content basically. Yeah. Um, if you, and if you like the idea of being a private eye in a classic noir setting, uh, then you will like this game all the more. What I would say is that the combat is like so clunky and stupid and frustrating that it's not even worth discussing. It's just outright bad. Um, and again, this game got really mixed reviews. So like, you know, I'm not here to say this is like the greatest game ever. I do think it's a really, really interesting piece of media for a Lovecraft fan. And and actually, Pete, I hadn't thought about what you were saying, which is that um, the more that it succeeds as a game, the more it fails as Lovecraft. And that Lovecraft, despite being this seminal horror and sci-fi writer, uh, is not his stories just do not lend themselves to <laughs> being converted into games. That's I think that's a fair statement. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, well, it's and I mean, it's one of the things that's that's so frustrating about it, because I think we're all like swept away from his by his imagination. And it's really fascinating. But like nobody I like, do you identify with his characters? Because fundamentally identifying with his characters means that you're like uh, you're a weak dreamer that's swept away by madness. Like they, they aren't compelling people necessarily. Not even a little bit. No, I mean, that's that's completely like, <laughs> um, yeah, I think when we had Leslie on, we talked about how Lovecraft doesn't really create people. He doesn't care about that. The right. people are just they're just a vehicle to move you through what he wants to do. Um, and the sort of the typical drama in a Lovecraft story is usually the same. It's that you you delve too deep, as Gandalf said, and you encounter something that drives <laughs> you in, drives you insane and or kills you. Uh, and and we've, it happens over and over and over again in love, in especially in later Lovecraft, especially in the Cthulhu Mythos. Um, so have you ever played a, a another video game with an insanity mechanic? I'm trying to think. Uh, maybe, but if so, it's gosh, I'm trying to think. There's like, like no, Darkest so. Dungeon has one, and uh, well, Call of Cthulhu has one. I'm not sure that counts under the circumstances, but uh, yeah, it's it's rare. But it's not like they didn't break new territory here. Right. Well, um, I mean, I was thinking about like um, just to, to kind of build on the point about like Lovecraft himself not creating people. Yeah. What this game does, what you notice immediately is that the game does in a very classic game way need to create characters that Lovecraft would never have conceived of. Um, so the one, of the one of the first guys you meet is sort of one of the town leaders. And he actually could be out of Lovecraft because at least when you first meet him, he sort of is just this grandee with his own agenda. Who's telling you to do shit that could be out of Lovecraft. Um, but you also like, you also meet quickly an Innsmouther cause the, you know, spoil, not much of a spoiler happens early on in the game. The Innsmouthers who are, believe it or not, fish, like <laughs> fish, like people have uh, migrated into the city after their city was destroyed, which is canon that comes from shadow over Innsmouth. Um, so they've migrated. Oh, come on. So you meet Innsmouthers, but like, they're just, you know, they're people and they don't all follow the agenda of the esoteric order of Dagon. Although you encounter those people quickly too. Yeah. Uh, and they, you know, they vary as just as people with autonomy and you make moral choices around them. Charles Reed always gets to make moral choices that have at least some sense of stakes. Um, often it's whether to rat somebody out or not, but I'm suspicious that a lot of them go to the same place though. Oh yeah. So, you know, it's not like super elaborated that like the game's going to morph if you make certain choices. It's more just like, how do you choose to play the character morally? So you create your own internal stakes, I guess. Yeah. Um, but like, for instance, and I'm sure this this goes to some sinister end, but like you you relatively quickly, if you as you're playing the main quest, 
Um, and, and what's again, this is this is kind of gonna drives me nuts in some ways because it is technically very much an open world, but it's an open world that doesn't have a ton for you to interact with. So you're just like, well, okay, might as well do the main quest because there's not like a ton going on here. Um, you know, so but um you you immediately uh, meet a woman who is uh, clearly a representative of the esoteric order of Dagon, which is using its acronym, but is <laughs> claiming to have a different name, which I thought was a great, hilarious touch. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that goes way deeper. I'm, I've just scratched the surface of that. And you're, you're immediately, the, the thing that, that struck me that is so not Lovecraftian, but is so classic for video games, is that this woman is sinister, but charismatic. You clearly shouldn't trust her. And in the context of the game with your character, she she at least has the feel early on of a love interest. And you're just like, OK, H.P. Lovecraft has never, ever had a love interest unless he can create a hideous, like unspeakable marriage across, you know, between humans, <laughs> humans, and some kind of monster. It's the only time he's interested in, in romance. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, miscegenation was the only interest there. Yeah. Ugh. But uh, um. So, uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but, uh, have you gotten to the point where the, the gangster family's doing some infighting? Uh, not yet, but it's clear that's going to happen. Okay. So at some point you basically have the choice of backing a guy who is really strong willed and is clearly a good fighter against like unspeakable horrors from beyond, but who is a murderous jackass or, somebody wants to set up soup kitchens, but is a lot more vulnerable. And like, those are the choices that are consistently set up in this game. That's like, what kind of a, like, are you a chump or are you a monster? Choose. You have 15 seconds. Well, that's you, you, okay. Great, great point. I haven't gotten there yet. And that's, that's not typical of the game because partly like so much of this game is about different factions wielding food by get uh, a power by giving food away. That's like a recurring thing is like that, uh, the city is starving. It's cut off and the sort of the path to sort of both power and moral standing and everything else is to give food away. So I'm glad I'm interested to see that, where that goes. Um, yeah, I mean, this, this is a game that made me think a lot about the dictates. Like what are the constraints of character and narrative for a game that wants to operate this way, wants to have a somewhat open world, wants to have the immersive story, but then also wants to bring in things from outside, in this case, the whole Lovecraft canon. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a game where you can really see the seams, for better or worse, and where you really feel like pressing on you at all times uh, are just sort of like the narrow way that we've defined this kind of game, especially because in this case, it's not it's not a very well made game in a lot of key ways. But yeah. um, it's I mean, there was yeah. some love involved, but there's clearly like there's some interface issues. Yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of games beyond the like very highest quality releases every year. Like it's just you can easily imagine sort of a skeleton of this where it's like, all right probably somewhat at one point wanted to make this world more interactive and just feel bit and feel just sort of vaster and more textured and they didn't have time to do it. And that's true of most attempted open worlds. Right. Right. Uh, and also I'm sure that somebody wanted to make the combat better. I've heard this whole studio struggles with combat. Um, and it's just like laughably primitive. I think someone said in one of the reviews that I read, I think at IGN, they said, it feels like it's the combat's been imported from like a mediocre PS2 game, which is <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like that, pretty that accurate. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, like if it weren't for explosion explosives, there's a lot of areas I wouldn't be able to clear. Um, it's also funny you should the, mention. Yeah, the stealth mechanics suck. Like, have you ever successfully hid from anyone? No. <laughs> uh, and maybe that means they're really good and I'm just terrible. I don't know. But it certainly has not worked out for me. Well, it's funny you should mention the um, the stealth in the combat because I'm actually stuck right now. Right before logging on, I got killed like six times by this mm. one monster that I accidentally reanimated in the... Oh, oh I know exactly where you are. Yeah. You hit, you hit the button. Yeah. <laughs> Folks, think twice for hitting the red button. That's all I'm going to say. And it's like a monster that I'm not, I don't really have the gear to fight. And the combat system is just so awful that like, you know, all of my experience in game combat, which is fairly extensive, is not really doing me many favors, kind of trundling around with this awkward character and his little pistol. Um, May I make a humble suggestion? Yeah, please do. Go to the stairway and jump over the crates. Get some distance so he can't get to you and then shoot him. That's a good call. I, I sort of try to do a version of that and I keep still getting hit, but I'm going to, I'll try to be nimbler and um, keep doing a version of that. Cause yeah, I did that six times before it worked. If that's, any <laughs> that's what I'll be doing right after this folks. So there you go. Live on the air. That's uh that's us doing dorky video game strategy, but I appreciate it. Um, yeah. I mean this man, I'll tell you what this game makes me want to do. It, 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 uh, it makes me want to go back to some of the early Lovecraft and think more about pre Cthulhu Lovecraft. I think we should talk about that some before we end Lovecraft month. We really have everything we've done so far has been post Cthulhu. And really in a lot of ways, that's his best work. There's a reason people go to that, but um, right. Yeah. But that would be a lot of fun to do. We should, uh, well, well, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. Not in front of people, I suppose, but like hunt for a guest. It's certainly something I'd enjoy talking about with you, but if somebody's really into that, that we can think of. You know, yeah, Uh-oh. yeah, yeah. Well, but okay. So you know, sometimes folks get to hear the behind the scenes discussions, um, and yeah, I'm, I let's 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 figure out a way to squeeze in some non Cthulhu before we before we shut this baby down. Um, so yeah, I oh, I had a um, I was paging through the Discord because uh, we have a crew of smart people talking about extremely random things, and occasionally it gives me a good question to bug you with. Uh, can I fire it at you? Always. Okay. So, uh, Frank, uh, within the past hour said, to what extent should authors own interpretations of their work? And the follow-up question is, isn't Lovecraft month about that? That's bogus. Very good question. Especially because I, I assume part of where Frank is coming from there is that, uh, Adam and I did a very, uh, <laughs> academically intensive episode, on Walter Ben Michaels and Stephen Knapp's Against Theory that maybe some of you have heard. It's behind the paywall. And it was a piece of literary theory, or rather anti-theory, that is relevant to Lovecraft because it's all about like the significance of authorial intent and how you define authorial intent, um, which, of course, is something you have to grapple with in the case of Lovecraft because it, it is possible or even perhaps uh, hard to deny in a lot of cases that his intent was bad, at least in the sense that it came from a place of bigotry and resentment um, and even malice in some cases, potentially. So, like, to what extent should authors get to own interpretation of their work? Kind of kind of presses on all of those questions. Um, I, You know what? I'm going to stall for time while I think about that. I'm going to ask you, 
Pete, did you did you get the chance to listen to our Against Theory episode? I'm gonna I'm gonna come out right now and say that I was very tired during recording that. I don't I don't think it was as clear as it could have been, and that's my fault. Uh, but um, you know, I think Adam did a great job. I just was not like I was so tired when we recorded that. But did you did you did you get get through that one? I have not yet because I was like it came out and then I immediately started traveling back. Oh yeah, yeah, that's all good. So, but um, yeah, I I owe, I owe it a listen. So, uh, um. I guess that's another we'll talk about it offline thing, man. <laughs> no, you well, you were dude, you were away doing important researches like, you know, podcasts are not as important as uh, <clears throat> uncovering well, the eldritch horrors. <laughs> I did touch uh, a metallic crystal in a in a temple and uh, the lights keep flickering and a little I'm a little uptight about it. dude. <laughs> well, you know, look, um, <clears throat> We'll do, I'll do a wellness check on you after we finish recording this. I'm sure there's nothing to worry about between now and then, though. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but thinking about the, the question from Frank, uh, 20 essential authors, I don't uh, personally, so my feeling is I don't think that authors get what I would call ownership over interpretation. I think that if your goal as a writer is to be interpreted in a particular way, then it is incumbent upon you to be as careful about achieving that meaning as you possibly can. And your intent to achieve that meaning in and of itself means something. And then your success at actually registering that meaning also means something. They're not necessarily the same thing to me. Um, What does this mean in the case of Lovecraft? I think that Lovecraft is an interesting case study because, you know, people have taken his work, which in some ways is so specific and peculiar and have used it for every conceivable purpose. Um, you know, they've, they, people have turned it into comedy, which is absolutely not meant to be. Uh, mm-hmm. they, that's, a, that's a classic sort of, you know, people have expanded on the canon in the ways that make it more generic. And in fact, I would say Sinking City is an example of a loving tribute to Lovecraft that nonetheless, nonetheless renders him more generic simply because you're taking very strange material and fitting it into the cookie cutters of uh, open world video game making. Um, there's conventions you can't violate and have people happy with your game. And those go directly against, uh, well, Cthulhu, man. Yeah. And like, I would say, I mean, like, like none of that necessarily has anything to do with like a credible or correct interpretation of the original work. I think it's important to remember that like the more people that like your work or hate your work more people who engage with your work the more it's going to be not so much interpreted as appropriated and appropriation is a a term that we tend to use in a specific way to talk about cultural appropriation. I just mean here that it it sort of gets taken and repurposed in general. And Lovecraft is of course, wildly appropriated all over the place. Um, So it's really, it's kind of a complex answer. I guess the point is that like, it really matters what authors want you to do as an interpreter absolutely matters. It doesn't fully, ba- you know, bound your interpretation. It is very much up to the writer to instantiate in the that wor- in the work. And I think that it's almost inherently the case that an intelligent reader who is determined to cut against what the author wanted can probably find evidence that will undercut it, if only because to like get very theoretical. You know, like everything contains its opposite, or like whatever. You can always read things as ironic or um, sure. Yeah, you could always force an interpretation, whether it's, whether it's in, in any sense correct or not. Um, I, I guess my, my 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 simplest version of my answer after all of that is just to say it's more of a burden 
it's it's actually more of an obligation that's put upon writers to sort of try to get people to interpret things one way. It's more of an, it's an obligation that it is sort of a liberty that they get, if that makes sense. It's a responsibility, like, not a freedom. Connor, are you making a moral argument? <laughs> no, I, I actually don't mean this in moral terms. I just mean that like you. <laughs> I was I was having you on. I apologize. <laughs> no, that's a good it's a good question. It helps me clarify. I, I'm keeping that. I'm gonna keep this in aesthetic terms. I just think that. Um, yes, like I will side with some of the things that Adam said in that episode about the importance of trying to uncover intention. Like intention very much matters. I don't think that it, I don't know that it, that it matters in quite the encompassing way that someone like Walter Ben Michaels would argue. But um, that 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 it matters so much comes with a tremendous burden uh, to actually instantiate the intention in the work to bring that intention into being. And like I'm grappling with this right now in my. In my current novel, um, I definitely have a specific way I want it to be interpreted. And I've spent I spent plenty of time imagining ways that it could be misinterpreted. And part of it is just realizing that it's inevitable, especially on the Internet. Someone will misinterpret it willfully, even maliciously. Uh, Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Or they might or they might misinterpret it because they just don't understand it. Um, And they don't actually mean any anything, any harm by it. But it's it's never going to be easy. But I really think that. But I'm I'm willing to put the burden on writers uh, in this case. That's at least at least given partly because I, I know how much I think about these things and how much I try to tailor my work towards clarity, like both having clarity of meaning while not being like heavy handed and didactic, which, by the way, is not an easy thing to do. Uh, <laughs> that's one of the, I think one of the core challenges of doing of doing good fiction. I, I want to talk about something related and specific. Um, and that is uh, Conan and Robert E. Howard. Uh, so you, you, we've talked in the past about how uh, Lovecraft gave permission to the writer of Conan to use Cthulian mythos within his work. And that was really interestingly enacted because if you think about the world of Conan, there's not a lot of like unknowable, undefeatable, foreboding sense of doom that drives you mad and nothing you can do kind of stuff going on. It is like lone hero bites through the chains that are holding him and tears your head off like a, like a grape. Like it is a completely different set of world laws and of rules. And uh, Lovecraft was very generous with sharing this garden he'd absolutely let people write within the Cthulhu mythos that were not doing the same things he was. And that tradition has moved forward a little bit. An example I can give is there is this, uh, there's a video game. I think it came out last year. It might've came out the year before. And it's a, it's a Conan the Barbarian multiplayer game. And you can get it on PS4 and all of those. And there, it is rife with Cthulhu crap, and it is very Conan the Barbarian. Like, if you are not willing to be a cannibal, you have a hell of a rough time surviving in that world. And wow, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, and there's this corruption and insanity that can affect you, and the only way you can cure yourself of it is to find other like non-player characters in the game, beat the shit out of them, bring them back to your base, put them on a slave wheel until they're broken and have them dance for you. Hand to God. And that is like, that is pure, perfect Conan the Barbarian horrible stuff. But it's different horrible stuff. Right. 
I mean, Robert Howard is interested in the ways that human beings are horrible to each other and sort of yes. relentlessly so and and sort of putting that that horribleness at the center of their beings uh and the center of societies and everything. like that's that's what interests him and Lovecraft, and he was a lo- and the sexuality as well sorry go ahead you're you're going someplace cool oh sure sure yeah i was saying that lovecraft doesn't actually care much about that he's certainly scared of other people but he's always <laughs> he's always trying to break beyond uh the limitations of of uh you know human society for lack of a better word um and i think there's something in him and like you know, he 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 may have yeah he may have had fears and resentments and even malice towards other human beings, but like at one level there was a sense in which I think he just hated the obligations of being a human being. Like you know, this is clearly not a guy who this is a guy who, as as Liv pointed out, is clearly repulsed by the body. Uh, yeah. Someone that we know is not if he's at all erotic, it doesn't come out in the work, and it wouldn't be in a healthy way. Uh, you know, he's he's. There's just so much obviously wrong with him when you aggregate his work and his life and everything else. But it, 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 yeah, it, it actually where, where I'll give Lovecraft a compliment. He's not he's not, in fact, reveling in the ways that the human beings are cruel to each other. He's interested in stepping beyond that and thinking about the sort of existential horror of being uh, of feeling significant and not being significant or feeling like you have agency and having none, feeling like you might have some power and actually having none. Uh, and that is precisely why we're not having Conan month because he never made that step. Like they both had some of the same problematic thoughts, but Robert E. Howard spent most of his time measuring people's skulls with calipers. And that's not what Lovecraft was interested in. Lovecraft was interested in the world getting crushed. Much more interesting. Yeah. Well, in fairness, I think Lovecraft kept his calipers well oiled uh, too, but let's, it's more <laughs> of a side thing for him. Yeah, um, yeah. It was it was more of a hobby than an avocation. Yeah, ex- absolutely. So you know, those are two different ways to be scared, lonely. Although Lovecraft, you know, was married. Uh, I don't know that Howard. Howard was like a Howard was like an incel, right? He was like a he. He literally lived in his mom's basement. Yes. Yeah. So he was like an early archetype for a lot of things. And if you were around today, who boy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like both. Yeah, I, I just it it's depressing to think about. Right. Although they would both, be, I think, probably noxious politically. I think Lovecraft would probably be more interesting, but still noxious. I mean, yeah. So it, it you know, again, that is another, another limitation is that like you need in the narrative world of a video game sort of like a clashing of of characters, you need a clashing of conscious, you know, consciousnesses. They don't need to be people necessarily, mm-hmm. but uh, you need to stage. A, I need need to is a strong world word. I should say that you know, major studio produced uh, games of the kind that Sinking City is feel a need in much the same way that that studio films in Hollywood feel a certain set of needs. They feel the need to stage sort of a classic dramatic conflict between conscious entities, and you know. To be clear, I think Cthulhu is conscious, so it's not like that's not necessarily not what Lovecraft is doing. But like again, it's like it's between a human conflicts between human beings and forces that we can perhaps recognize, but in recognizing them, it, it drives us insane. And any recognition or understanding of your opponent leads to insanity and death, rather than like staging this you know battle with that. You're not going to stage a battle. Uh, for dominance with Cthulhu. Uh, that's part of that Charles Strauss story that we read is about. Like you try to use Cthulhu as a weapon and you end the whole world. 
because that's a hubristic, stupid thing to do. Um, so yeah, I mean like it, Lovecraft is, is simultaneously the most, like one of the most widely appropriated, recycled, whatever term you prefer writers in not only the sci-fi or horror canon, but in the literary canon. Um, yeah. He's simultaneously that. And at the same time, it's very hard to actually use the raw material of what he was really doing because you're going to, if you're going to want to put it in any kind of more traditional story setting, whether it's comedic or dramatic or anything else, uh, you're going to end up staging a set of conflicts between, uh, between beings that are probably functioning at something, something more like a similar plane to one another. And, and, and Lovecraft was interested, I think, in in moving beyond those limitations and trying to do something else. And and really, even in his work, which is so fantastic, uh, ongoing theme of it, an ongoing part of its deep aesthetics is just that like you can only sort of outline it, and the characters can only glimpse parts of it, and they can't really describe it to you. Um, but it's out there, <laughs> and yep. that again, that's very hard to. That's, that's a difficult. If if Lovecraft ever seems unsatisfying. To people, it's because that he tells these whole stories where the story structure itself and the characters are all just sort of thrown together rather somewhat lazily to sort of give you a glimpse of something. And that is a strange, it's, you know, in some ways a very strange impulse for art. Like, why would you go to the trouble of creating all this art where it's just to create a glimpse of something you can't, you almost can't depict? Uh, yeah. But again, that's what makes Lovecraft so strange and so interesting. So I. Uh, in addition to delving through some Cycloptean tombs while I was gone, um, I went to London and one of the things I did, uh, was I read a, uh, well, I, I read the, uh, the collection of Sherlock Holmes works. And I also read one that was, a like a homage that was Sherlock Holmes Cthulian hybrid stories. Oh, nice. I thought, yeah, it was really cool. Uh, I mean, of mixed quality, of course, but still cool. But I started thinking about that shared sandbox idea. Like it's very normal and expected for detective writers to go out and like borrow Poirot or borrow, uh, I mean, Sherlock Holmes, whoever you want to name. And in, um, in science fiction and fantasy and horror, borrowing from Lovecraft is considered very normal. Can you do that outside of the genre walls? Because it sounds like the, something people would frown on, frankly. So the question is... Can the question's you, pretty weird, so sorry about that. Oh, no, I'm, I'm thinking through it. Uh, the question is, like, is... Can you play in someone else's sandbox when you do traditional lit? Like, I, could could you write another story with some of the characters from the Brothers Karamazov? Oh, or so, so there are examples of this uh, happening, yeah. I mean, I can think of... Oh, there was a novel that did, that was popular a few years ago, that there, there have been, like, so many... Well, I shouldn't say there's one novel... There have been so many retellings of like the Odyssey or the Iliad from different points of view, for instance, that are novelizations. And some are many of those are not particularly serious, but um, there certainly are some very serious attempts at that kind of thing. I mean, like so Michael Cunningham, uh, The Hours, which was a a successful film early in the 21st century. uh, That's based on Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. Um, So. Yeah, there, this actually is sort of there is sort of a recurring impulse to do this. Is it, you know, 
is 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 that work typically as it, it may declare itself to be artistically ambitious, but is it really? Uh, you know, I, I'm probably dubious about that. I think a lot of it is probably what we call middle brow, um, be, partly because couching yourself in homage and pastiche and appropriating someone else's work can lead to a very satisfying, uh, you know, product. But I don't know that it I, I am dubious that if, if your ambitions are really lofty, that it's going to get you there. But again, so little that's produced that even, even the stuff that declares itself to be serious actually has that level of serious intention. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, it feels clever rather than insightful. I mean, that's I, it's a weird thing to say. What, what I start thinking of is like pride and prejudice and zombies or <laughs> like Abe Lincoln vampire hunter. It's, it's an attempt to... Uh, like some lines, it's it's unusual to cross them, and I I think you like better have a goal in mind when you do it. And I I, I don't know, I'm I'm overthinking this. I think, but I've I I'm very interested in the idea that this is done um, on a less commercial level because on some level, most genre writers I've talked to are uh, are building a career. Yeah. I, and I think that I found myself thinking about that more and more lately. Um, now that I'm in very, very literary precincts, um, that's a conversation for another, for another day, though. Uh, but yeah. we should have it. It would be very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I have an ever-growing catalog of thoughts about the the so-called the, the supposed opposition between genre and literary fiction, and why that. I mean, people have heard me go off about that before. I need to kind of make sure I'm coming up with some fresh thoughts. I think. Um, <laughs> I do think that there, if if the broad point here that applies back to Sinking City, where we started, is that there is something very appealing and at times deeply satisfying about using someone else's work, especially in a loving, thorough way that brings out aspects of it that aren't necessarily apparent or even tries to add something. I think that can be a very useful practice. Is it is it inherently limiting? Yes. Um, is it? less bold than trying to take that inspiration and go in a totally new direction with it. Absolutely. So, you know, I mean, I think, I think there's sort of a subcategory of narrative art in particular that is so, as you say, is in the sandbox that is so rooted in that kind of pastiche uh, that it, it, it can do something, some really interesting things. And I think sinking city at its best does achieve something interesting. There is something really cool uh, for all of its flaws about the, the gestalt that it achieves with its sort of loving 20s aesthetics, noir aesthetics layered over the Lovecraftian elements. Um, it, it, like, you can get somewhere pretty cool. You get somewhere that's probably as cool as a lot of things with higher ambitions that just don't achieve those ambitions. On the other hand, um, you know, if you want to take sort of some new conceptual step, uh, you know, beyond the bounds of what's already familiar, you're not going to get there with that method, probably. I think in a broad sense. So, well, um, did you ever play the Resident Evil games? Uh, no, actually. Okay, I I'm not judging you as a person, and I I need to play all of them. I've I've played a few, but they really did a great job with atmospheric and unexplained horror, and this, the Sinking City at its best approaches that feeling of helplessness. And that's, that's like the nicest thing I can say about this game. 
is is that it it moved in the direction that the, that the best of those games went in. Yeah, it actually reminded now that you mentioned it, it remind, did remind me of a game I played a long time ago. I played the uh, original Silent Hill on Xbox. Um, yeah, that's a good example. Yeah, and and that is a strong influence on Sinking City. And there are moments when Sinking City uh, gets close to that. I think Silent Hill. Silent Hill is a memorable game experience for me because it's like the only genuinely terrifying game I've played. Um, that is yeah. a freaky game. <laughs> I I actually is I found myself a few times like in in the room I'm in right now with the lights off playing that game and having a jump scare or two. The uh, the Sinking City, I mean, and that that is what I remember from Silent Hill. Yeah. So I think I mean I think we're getting close to wrapping up here. Does that sound good, yeah. Pete? Yeah. And I would say like Sinking City is worth playing. Uh, I think you can get it for relatively cheap. Uh, or you will shortly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, mean, so I, I hate to be that way, but like there, there, there will be a sale. Yeah, it's it's relatively new still. Last few months, it's not again didn't get great reviews. But if you are, look, if you're a Lovecraft diehard uh, and you like video games at all, I think it's worth checking out. Let's put it that way. Yeah, good call. And um, as we are coming up on the end, I just want to take a moment to say, Connor, thank you for carrying most of the way to the podcast while I was gone. You're a, you're a, you're a true friend. I appreciate it. Well, you're welcome, Pete. And thank you for saying that. Uh, I'll also say that, you know, <clears throat> I, I'm sorry I waited so long to say this, but I got a, a strange telegram about some disturbances. So I might be going away for a while soon, and you might have to hold down the fort. I'm sure it'll be fine, though. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>